are speaking with Richard Heydarian, who is an academic author, policy analyst, and advisor. He's the author of numerous books, but the one we'll be talking about today is The Rise of Duterte, A Populist Revolt Against Elite Democracy. Uh, I have it right here in the Kindle version. Uh, thank you for joining us, Professor Heydarian. My pleasure. Um, now, I only recently discovered your work, and I truly am impressed with the breadth of your, your knowledge and output. Uh, the book doesn't come cheap. It's 40 bucks, but I, I really do recommend it. Uh, it gave me really a crash course on the Philippines and, and President Duterte. It, I believe it's one of the first to examine the presidency of Duterte. And in order to properly understand uh, what's going on in the Philippines today, you lay out the global trend and context of this rise of populism which we're witnessing everywhere from uh, Mexico in the example of uh, Lopez Obrador, Britain, Italy, Hungary, Philippines. Um, this failure of Western liberal democracy in some parts of the world has resulted in what you call a hybrid form of government combining both democracy and autocracy. Could you tell us about the work you did first in tracing this trend and how that laid the foundation for uh, the rise of Duterte? Well, I mean, first of all, this is just going to be a beginning of a, you know, a series of works uh, I'm looking at. Hopefully, the next book I'm looking at is a comparative analysis of, uh, you know, uh, populism in multiple countries, uh, including Turkey, uh, in the case of Erdogan, of course, uh, Narendra Modi in the case of India. Uh, I'm looking at Jokowi, but most likely I'm also going to look at Prabowo, uh, the populist right-wing uh, former uh, general. Uh, and someone who has been accused of massive human rights violations who almost defeated uh, President Jokowi in the last elections and who will most likely run again next uh, in 2019. So uh, the fact of the matter is that it seems there is a trend here. Uh, and in my work, actually, I'm trying to distinguish between what I call emerging market uh, populism from the things that we see in the developed world. So the dynamics behind the rise of people like Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen, and all sorts of different kind of right-wing populists in the developed world, I think is different. Because this is where, uh, in these countries, we see economic stagnation playing a very important role, but also the issue of immigration. So that's why even in Nordic countries in Europe, whereby the economy is actually doing well, still you see uh, a lot of right-wing parties doing well. So you cannot say economic stag stagnation alone is a factor, but I think immigration is also a big factor. Now, if you look at countries like India or Philippines or Indonesia or even Turkey, uh, these are definitely not necessarily anti-immigration country. Uh, countries like Turkey are actually one of the largest uh, recipients of refugees from around the world, from places like Syria, for instance. Uh, it, the Turks, they're one of the largest exporters of labor, or that's what they used to be. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, and that's why you see a huge Turkish community in places like Germany. Philippines, India, and Indonesia up until today are one of the largest exporters of labor around the world. So the dynamics of anti-immigration uh, is definitely not something that uh, resonates uh, in the developing world, particularly among this what you call emerging market democracies. In terms of economic stagnation, that's where it gets even more interesting, because if you look at the case of Philippines, and Indonesia, and in earlier years in India and Turkey, these have been among the economic stars of the world, among the fastest growing economies in the world. So that's why it's more perplexing. So the rise of people like Donald Trump actually is quite understandable for a lot of people because we know that in a lot of parts of America, in Rust Belt America, these are the so-called you know, losers of globalization. These are people who felt that outsourcing, 
that the import of high-end uh, technology, high-end culture, high-end labor from other parts of the world has led to their uh, essentially dislocation. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump also was able to tap into this kind of anti-immigration sentiment among the Rust Belt in, in America, also in other parts of the country. And we see similar sentiments also helping the rise of right-wing populists in Europe. Essentially, losers of globalization or perceived losers of globalization turn on immigrants and turn on uh, globalization. And in persons like Donald Trump or Marine Le Pen, they see some sort of answer or a way to shake up the system. That's not the case in the Philippines. That's not the case in Turkey or India. In these cases, we see something else. Now, the theories that I try to look at in order to understand why you have populism in precisely these promising countries, what you can call trouble in paradise, is no less than Samuel Huntington. Now, I have huge reservations with his latest works. In fact, I always make a joke that while Francis Fukuyama uh, had started with terrible books in, and is ending now with great books, I think Huntington went in the reverse direction. His last book's Clash of Civilization. Uh, and of course, uh, his last book about American identity was, I think, in many ways justifying the kind of rhetoric we see right now from Donald Trump, whereby Islam and the Mexicans and Latinos were very much at the receiving end of criticism of Huntington. But his book, Political Order in Changing Societies in 1968, I think was an excellent book. Uh, unfortunately, it was used by technocrats of people like Socarno or technocrats of people like Marcos uh, to justify uh, what you call technocratic autocracy. But actually, he also had a very interesting insight. The insight that Huntington brought to the table is what I call the institutionalization aspiration gap. So let's talk about this. It's kind of like a Malthusian trap. When the economy grows fast, Huntington's observ observation was in post-colonial countries amid rapid economic growth, the aspirations of people increases almost exponentially, right? Because people expect that tomorrow their income is going to be better, tomorrow they're going to have their own versions of American dream. They see booming economy in terms of new skyscrapers, the jump in terms of consumption, the increase in the number of cars. So aspirations tend to increase exponentially. That's just how human psychology works. When there's optimism, we kind of get ahead of reality. On the other hand, Huntington realized that post-colonial state institutions tend to increase only arithmetically in terms of their ability to respond to the new aspirations of people. So social mobilization goes high, economic expectations goes high, but the ability of the state to provide new public services and satisfy these needs only goes gradually. So one goes exponential, one goes arithmetic, and in a Malthusian way you see a gap. And that's precisely where uh, two phenomenons come to the picture, which are essentially the same for me. Democracy fatigue, because there's this notion now that democracy is just too slow. It cannot catch up with the aspirations of people, with the demand of the people. And the other one is, of course, uh, so one is, uh, uh, one is, uh, and the other one, of course, is grievance politics. So when there is fatigue with democracy, there's also frustration and grievance and resentment, resentment, and people are looking for someone to deal with that problem. So you can have all the structural conditions for populism, but you still need a populist to complete the formula. For instance, if you look at South Africa today, all the structural conditions for populism is there. Mm -hmm. okay. What we're waiting for a certain figure to actually occupy that. Obviously, Zuma was not there, but we see some young populist figures within the ANC and from outside the ANC trying to capture the popular imagination. So in the case of the Philippines, if you look at the last six, seven years, these were the golden years of the Philippines in terms of just raw economic growth. The country grew by 6.2% on average, which has been one of the highest in the world and the highest in the Southeast Asian region and only second to China. But just when the economy was doing good, that's also when we saw this phenomenon of grievance politics. Because on one hand, 
So on the one hand, the economy is growing fast, people's expectation is going high, but the public services is very slow. So one of the best manifestations of that, in my opinion, if, is if you look at traffic congestion, for instance, in Manila and Jakarta, it's among the worst in the world by any metric and measure. And it's very interesting to look at it because traffic got worse in a place like Philippines and lesser degree in Jakarta because purchases of cars just went through the roof over the past decade. Because more people could afford cars, credit became easier. But the fact of the matter is that while the numbers of cars jumped up, the public services, public goods, public transportation did not improve accordingly. So you have a clog. So in a way, the traffic is a microcosm of essentially that Malthusian institutionalization aspiration trap I was talking about. And that is reflected in many ways. But the other thing you look at uh, is also this. While people's aspirations go high, their sense of entitlement also goes high. So they become more sensitive to inequality. Inequality is nothing new around emerging markets. India, the whole caste system in India somehow sanctifies inequality. But when the economy is doing well and new aspirational middle class goes high, they kind of feel that now that piece of pie should go to them. So in places like the Philippines, actually, over the past six years, inequality actually got even worse. So uh, according to the World Bank in 2012 and 13, 40 families, only 40 families, 0.00001% of population took home 76% of newly created growth. So that amazing 6.2% that, that I talked about, um, about 5% of that only went to a very tiny uh, percentage of the population. Meanwhile, the democratic institutions were a sham. You go to the Philippines, what you see is essentially the father and the son, the illegitimate son, the second mistress, all of them running a whole uh, political, uh, the smallest political institution in the Philippines is the barangay, right? It's like village level. So you go to this neighborhood, you see similar names all over the place. And the one person who doesn't have a similar name tends to be the brother-in-law or, or, or a mistress or out of wedlock son or something like that. So. <laughs> And on that, and on that point, that, I just had a question. Uh, you write in your book, you mentioned Argentina has that same problem uh, where 10% uh, and Mexico has 40% of these old dynasties uh, control. You know, I just became Mexican last week. I'm a U.S. citizen, but I just received citizenship from Mexico. And we joke that 12 families control the country in Mexico, but you say in the Philippines it's something like 70%. You know, yeah. what, what has to give for that to change? You know, honestly, um, well, I have his Hispanic background too, and and in many ways, actually, I relate more with Latin America uh, than Southeast Asia. You know, when I watch, watch Narcos, it kind of felt like the Philippines, except I don't agree with President Duterte that we are a Narcos state. But you know, the kind of haciendero culture, the corruption, the womanizing, the self righteousness, going to the church and then committing crime and then feeling good about it, nonetheless, it's very common. It's very similar to the Philippines, a Catholic majority country who was. 333 years under the Spanish uh, empire via Mexico. So there's this very strong affinity between those uh, two parts of the world. But even compared to Latin America, my argument is that the Philippines is terrible in terms of concentration of political power. So in Mexico, it's around 40% of the Congress or parliament is actually controlled by what you can define as political dynasties, people who are, who are related by second degree of consanguinity or less, for instance, son, brother, or you know, cousins, for instance. In Argentina, it's around 10%. Philippines, it's 70%. Now, some studies that took into consideration mistresses out of wedlock kids, the number jump up to 80, 90%, right? So that's how bad it is in terms of concentration of power. That's why I used to call the Philippines, and I continue to call the Philippines an oligarchy disguised as democracy. Because democracy in election is actually just 
a peaceful way by which the liberal oligarchs in the Philippines exchange positions of power among themselves. And unlike Indonesia, we have never had someone like Jokowi, someone totally from a very humble background, from no political dynasties, making it to the presidency. President Duterte actually comes from a political dynasty. The Dutertes control Davao, and the Dutertes have been one of the most influential families in the Philippines, but in the southern part of the Philippines. But nonetheless, what I'm saying here is that, so you can have all the structural conditions for the rise of populism, but you still need the populist. And Duterte was unique in the last election. I mean, many ways, of course. Uh, the more unique aspect of him is quite familiar to us uh, via, you know, uh, media headlines, you know, cursing the Pope, cursing at Obama, cursing at American ambassador, uh, saying that we should be allied with China, we should distance from ourselves from America. He's the first one who went from mayor to president. So there are a lot of things that is new with uh, President Duterte. Uh, but what President Duterte was also able to do in the last election is, is to tap into this content of people and make it as anti-establishment movement, to essentially tell the people, all the problems we have today and all this problem of drugs and law and order is because we have democracy. We have too much democracy, we have too much freedom, you have to put power in me. And in fact, the election was not only about Duterte. The other person that almost became the vice president and still can become the vice president is Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of former Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos, who controlled the country for more than 20 years. So you had President Duterte and the son of the former dictator in his namesake almost winning the number one and two positions. In fact, the person who defeated Ferdinand Marcos Jr. by only 200,000 votes, and that that is actually now under contestation in the Philippine Supreme Court. Lenny Robredo, she was also a provincial congresswoman. She was not part of the mainstream elite. So all the top three contenders, in one way or another, were not part of the elite. So for me, something was going on here. This was a protest vote, and it became a protest vote because Duterte, Marcos, and other kind of candidates were very effective in saying to the people, democracy is not something for us. We cannot afford those freedoms. We have to go for strongman candidates. But that's just one side of the story. The other side of the story is that how was Duterte even able to get that far? Now, this is where I think the new book, Why Democracy Die, is a very interesting book because it talks about filters, right? One of the biggest problems was that Duterte was able to come that far because the other liberal democratic candidates were not able to coalesce together. The other thing is that Duterte was able to come this far because you have no real political parties in the Philippines. So during the elections, the liberal candidates were split. They did not unify. So Duterte, all he had to do was just to get more vote than anyone else. It was a single round first past the post. And he won that. He just got more vote than anyone else. Once he was in position of power, the political parties did not check him. And this is where U.S. is in a slightly better position. So the, the, the metaphor I use, or, or simile, or whatever allegory I want to use is, imagine if Trump did not get a nomination of the Republican Party, ran on the Tea Party ticket as an independent candidate, ran an outrageous campaign. By some chance, he won because he just got more votes than anyone else. And then the moment he wins, the entire Republican Party defects to the Tea Party and almost the entire Democratic Party minus, I don't know, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris defect also or sign a non-aggression pact. That's what happened in the Philippines. So when Duterte won the presidency, he still did not have a political backing because his political party, PDP Laban, is a more or less parochial, provincial, uh, used to be progressive party that only won three seats in the Philippine Congress. Next thing you know, they went from three to 300 in the Philippine Congress because everyone else defected to them. So this is where you see that the rise of uh, 
populist and increasingly an autocrat like Duterte is, is fueled by the inefficacy of the liberal candidates to unify during the elections. And second, by the sheer shameless political opportunism of the Philippine political establishment. And when you have those elements there, when you see the Philippine political elite not fighting for fundamental constitutional values that undergird Philippine democracy, why would ordinary Filipinos fight for democracy? So increasingly, you're also seeing cynicism and skepticism among a growing uh, no number of people across the Philippines. And that's why it's so easy for Duterte to, to develop what I'm calling an imperial presidency in the Philippines. And then can we um, shift a little bit now to the geopolitics? Um, Duterte has come out and said recently, I believe that China should make a province out of the Philippines. Uh, he's been admonished, I guess, for, uh, about that statement, obviously from a patriotic standpoint. Uh, but in many regards, the American century is over, some people say. It seems he's taking a more realist, pragmatic, transactional approach, you say, to foreign policy. Will, yeah. he, sh will he shift away from the U.S. sphere of influence into the arms of China? Uh, and yeah. to this new center of global geopolitics that's being formed in Eurasia, or will he retain, as you say, these relationships with uh, subaltern realism? Well, what's going on there? Well, I, I wanted to be fair to Duterte. So in his first few months, I actually, I gave him benefit doubt. I was accused of being his de facto spokesman or foreign policy advisor because I tried to find the method to the madness because Duterte said a lot of outrageous things. Uh, and yet I felt, you know, there is a logic behind what he's trying to do. And of course, my assessment was not based on just media coverage. I interacted with members of his cabinet, with people in the government. Uh, I had a chance to meet the president shortly, but didn't have much time to talk about his foreign policy. But you see, it was based on, you know, this benefit of doubt. I wanted, to, I wanted to give the guy benefit of doubt. And my sense was, you know, President Duterte felt we're entering the post-American era, which is quite accurate. Uh, and he felt that, you know, if we're entering a post-American era and if Americans are no longer reliable because, you know, the Obama administration gave all sorts of promises of pivoting to Asia, but when push comes to shove, where were they? So in 2012, there was a Scarborough crisis. The Chinese outmaneuvered us, essentially exercised, uh, essentially wrested control of that land feature. Where was America? That was a big question we asked. In 2016, the Philippines won a clear cut arbitration award against China, what, what, what did the Obama administration do? What, the Obama administration actually deployed Susan Rice to Beijing to appease China as if China was, the, was not the outlaw, as if China was the aggrieved party. And John Kerry was saying we have to be patient, etc. So we felt the Americans were not with us when we were actually standing up to China. You know, during the Aquino administration from 2000. Uh, 10 to 2016, but particularly after the Scarborough in 2012, the Philippines was the number one hawk, perhaps in entire Asia, as far as China was concerned, next to Japan, right? And we did that without the capabilities of Japan. So you can imagine how risky that move was. But all of that strategy was predicated on the idea that the Filipino people are so anti-China themselves that they will support this at any cost. But more importantly, that the Americas will come to our rescue when it's necessary. But the Obama administration kept on disappointing us. In fact, President Obama, when he was in the Philippines in 2014, he was asked by some of my colleagues in the media twice, if there were a war in the South China Sea between the Philippines and China, will the mutual defense treaty between the Philippines and America apply? And President Duterte, uh, President Obama, I'm sorry, in a very nonchalant, lawyerly, and in fact dismissive way, said we're not going to go to war over what he called bunch of rocks. Now, 
if to remind him, just a few days earlier, he was in Tokyo and said the mutual defense treaty with Japan applies to the Senkakus. And the Senkakus are really just a bunch of rocks, right? Compared to some of the land features in the South China Sea that can actually house huge facilities, including the naturally formed ones like Tito Island that the Philippines controls. So we felt the Americans were not there for us. And that provided Duterte an ammunition. So when Duterte came into position of power, he said, the Americans are not reliable. And this is now backed up by survey. So interestingly, over the past year, several surveys came out, local international, and they say the same thing. So America remains to be the most favorable country in the eyes of the Filipinos. China remains to be the least favorable power. No surprise. What's surprising is when people ask, do you think America uh, is helpful to us in the South China Sea disputes? Almost half of Filipinos were not sure or said no. And then people were asked, do you think we should rather develop defense alliances with Russia and China than the United States? A large plurality said yes or maybe. That shows that there's a credibility gap here that Duterte was able to intelligently tap into. And Filipino people are pragmatic enough to be open to that. So a Pew's research survey came out, I think, last September, whereby it showed that the number of Filipino people who wanted more confrontation with China, as opposed to the number of Filipino people who wanted more economic engagement with China, the numbers reversed since Duterte came into power. And I think a large part of that is because of the Obama administration's unreliability, but also the fact that Trump is not helping the situation by being so unpredictable and so unreliable also in the eyes of people. But also the fact that China has provided us very clear terms of engagement. The Chinese position is very clear. And in fact, the Chinese ambassador, they call him the whisperer here in the Philippines because he's always talking to President Duterte and whispering something. We don't know what he's whispering, but uh, the Chinese ambassador made it very clear to our president that if we try to stand up to China, like what we did during the Aquino administration, they can make life hell for us. They can squeeze our supply lines uh, in the South China Sea. They can reclaim entirely Scarborough Shoal. And they ask us, do you think the Americans will help you see what they did in 2012? They were not there for you. Are they there for you? So, and Duterte said, yeah, maybe you're right. But the other thing that the Chinese did, which is what they do all around the world, is they offered us huge billions of dollars of investment deals. I am yet to see those mo that money, but the money was offered and it caught Duterte's attention. So Duterte's argument was it's suicidal to go to war with them. Americans are not really behind us. The Filipino people are pragmatic enough. Why not? Let's just cut a deal with the Chinese. That is why last year when the Philippines was incidentally the chairman of the ASEAN, the Philippines actually caught out to China more than any other chairman of the ASEAN since Cambodia in 2012, uh, whereby the Philippines actually told US, Australia and Japan uh, that back off, the South China Sea, in, in the words of the Duterte, should be left to themselves. So you have the Philippines right now using the ASEAN chairmanship to act as a shield of China against the international community on the South China Sea issue. This was a new law for the ASEAN, which I think escaped the attention of a lot of observers. Because observers keep on talking about ASEAN divided, divided and conquered by China. No, last year they were not divided and conquered. They were used as a shield by China against the international community. So interestingly, when Australia, Japan and US during the ASEAN Regional Forum in August, I was there, uh, they said the Philippines and China should abide by the arbitration ruling of 2016. The Philippine Foreign Secretary comes out and says, essentially, it's none of your business. So to put it half comically and tragically, he essentially said, it's our sovereign right not to assert our sovereign right with China. That's essentially what we did last year. That's so, that's, so my point is, it started good because it created the room for equilateral balancing and then Duterte just went overboard. 
So now we have to have recalibration. And the recalibration is in the offing, in my opinion, because first of all, the military is not happy. And if the military is not happy, Duterte is not secure, and Duterte has to make sure the military doesn't go against him. So Duterte could be popular, he could be an imperial president, and so on and so forth. But the Philippine military took out two presidents in the last 30 years, including a very popular and populist president, Arab Estrada, in 2001. So Duterte has to watch out for that. And the people in the military, including the defense minister, have repeatedly uh, you know, sung a different tune from the president. And that's not a good cop, bad cop thing. That's genuine disagreement within that Duterte administration. And the opinion of the military cannot be ignored. And whenever the Chinese made a suspicious, suspicious move into Philippine waters, whether it's in the Benham Rise in the Western Pacific, or whether it's close to the Philippine land features, con uh, controlled features by the Philippines in the Spratly Chain of Islands, there was always a popular backlash. So my argument is that if the Chinese move forward with reclaiming the Scarborough Shoal, militarizing the Scarborough Shoal, which is only 100 nautical miles from the Philippine mainland, I think there'll be a response both by the Philippine military and the broader Philippine civil society. So Duterte has gone, got this far, largely due to his charisma, Filipino pragmatism, America's unreliability, and China's promise of money. But that can just go so far. And that's gonna hit a cul-de-sac if the Chinese make an aggressive move in the South China Sea. The other thing that is going against Duterte, and I'm, I'm gonna be quick about this, is where is the money? The Chinese offered us billions of dollars, but last year, the Japanese made 25 times more investments than the Chinese. The Americans made six times more investment than the Chinese. The year before, the South Koreans made 11 times more investment than the Chinese. So my hypothesis is the Chinese strategy is they get a lot of bang out of imaginary buck. And you just have to go around the world in Central Asia, in Iran, and you can you, you can see one country after the other saying we were promised billions of dollars. In the end, we got sub-quality, questionable deals. And in a lot of times, actually, the money didn't come at all. So I hope President Duterte wakes up to that reality because I think he, he overestimated the Chinese generosity and goodwill. And the Chinese are just keep on reclaiming and militarizing the South China Sea. So I don't see them stopping, actually. And at the same time, I think he's also underestimating the value of America. No matter how unreliable America is, it's the only insurance policy the Philippines got because it's the only country that could come to the Philippine rescue in one way or another if things go south in the South China Sea. Because in my opinion, the Americans cannot just idly stand by if the Chinese do something aggressive because the Americans, essentially, Pentagon treats Philippines as a forward deployment base in the area. So the Philippines is also important uh, for America. So this is not about America caring about the Philippines. It's about America caring about projecting its power in the region, and the Philippines is an important part of that formula. And finally, uh, do you see any real risk or threat of, of escalation, as you say, around the South China Sea that would bring in Russia, U.S., China, you know, some greater conflagration? You've got hot spots like North Korea, and the Pentagon has been encircling Russia and China for, for decades now, and, and NATO has been expanding. You see in the near term any real risk for a greater conflict? Well, I mean, I think all of us are in agreement. I mean, my previous book was called Asia's New Battlefield. Uh, I mean, uh, the uh, Kaplan calls it, you know, Asia's cauldron. Uh, and then, of course, you have other people saying this is where the Tukitidis trap will happen. I think there is a basis to that because, as one Singaporean diplomat put it, South China Sea is where the parameters of Sino-American competition are most obvious, right? Because if the South China Sea is dominated by China, I think 
it's going to have a ripple effect in terms of view of American leadership in the region. I mean, if the Americans cannot hold on to the South China Sea, which, by the way, is the most important waterway in the world next to the Persian Gulf, then what's the point of being the global hegemon, right? And knowing the Chinese, once they dominate the so-called first island chain, which is the East China Sea and South China Sea, what will stop them from moving to the second island chain, which is the Western Pacific? This is what we call the dialectics of imperialism. How do you think Russia got went from Moscow all the way to California in the 18th century. Because the more you conquer, the more you have to create buffer zone, and that buffer zone later on will become part of your territory. You have to have a new buffer zone. And the, and the Chinese clearly since the 1980s have had plans of dominating two island chains. And ironically, their inspiration is Rome, which conquered uh, the Mediterranean or dominated the Mediterranean, and also U.S., which dominated the Caribbean and later on much of the Pacific under the so-called Alfred Thayan Mahan doctrine. So this Mahanian doctrine of the Americans and the Roman domination of Mediterranean is ironically the basis for the Chinese strategy of dominating adjacent waters. The, the Chinese never in their history had military domination of those waters. There was a short period during the Ming Dynasty whereby uh, uh, Admiral Zhang He had some sort of presence in the area but it's nowhere close to the kind of military domination that the Romans and the Americans enjoyed in their adjacent waters. So ironically, China is not looking deep in, into its history, but it's looking deep into Western history as an inspiration for dominating adjacent waters. And I think the, the Chinese calculation uh, is that that's the only way that they can protect modern China. And as the Chinese develop more and more submarine capabilities, and as the Chinese invest more and more, more money in the South China Sea, their tolerance for pushback by the other countries is dramatically going to also decrease. And most important of all, we know that China right now is now increasingly a single-man dictatorship, just like the Mao era. And when you have one person in power, and that one person is creating a cult of personality, and that when that one person is promising to bring China back to its glory days, to its golden days of global supremacy, then I won't be surprised if Xi Jinping at some point in time will be willing to really test the waters. And I think in, uh, in the next five or ten years, based on multiple studies, Rand Corporation study among others, the Chinese will have increasingly the upper hand. Now they asymmetrically can neutralize the Americans, but down the road they may even have conventional uh, symmetry with the Americans. Not to mention there is a tyranny of distance. Despite technology, South China is far away from major American bases, right? That is why the Americans need to maintain presence in the region. That is why they cannot afford to lose countries like the Philippines if they are going to hold on to their hegemony in this part of this world. So in a way, the two superpowers are sleepwalking into a global conflict. That is why it's important for the middle powers of Australia, Japan, uh, India, and the ASEAN as a whole to make sure that they create a post-American order whereby China is not dominant and America is not belligerent enough uh, to be the party pooper. So that is why the ASEAN summit with Australia the other day was very important. That is why the ASEAN summit with India in January was very important. And the Japanese are also trying to come into the picture and to make sure that China doesn't dominate the ASEAN. And I think in many ways the ASEAN will be the ultimate barometer of who's the big boy in the town. And the Chinese so far are a little bit ahead of everyone else, but it's not only China and US, let's not count out also other major middle powers. And in fact, if you put the GDP and military prowess of India, Australia and Japan together, forget about the US, they can match the Chinese. So that's the next stage, the so-called quad that we should look at. And my fear is that if the ASEAN doesn't get its act, to act together, if, it, if ASEAN is divided internally or you have opportunism on the part of individual chairmans, then these countries at some point are going to give up on ASEAN and essentially, uh, you know, 
take the matter into their own hands. Hopefully we don't go there, but there are risks of that. But as of now, what I see, based on conversation with senior officials from all of these major powers, what they want to do is to empower ASEAN so that ASEAN will be the first line of defense against Chinese hegemony in the region, because they just can't trust America to do that anymore. Richard, hey Darian, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, you've got three books, as you said, and your latest is Rise of Duterte. Uh, I recommend people go out and buy it. Uh, how can best people? How can people best uh, follow you and support your work? I believe you're on, you are on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Richard uh, Richard Darian, uh, and my uh, Facebook page is Richard Foronda Heydarian. And you can just Google News my latest articles. <laughs> Quite regularly, you can see something coming out in that. And on YouTube too, you can just put my name. Things are going to come out. Thank you very much.